Well, do keep your Bibles open and in your hand and turn with me to the passage just read a few moments ago. That's the first letter of John chapter 1. We'll start this evening in, in verse 5. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I was growing up, there were only a handful of absolutes, and I understand this is subjective. But my absolutes, I've got three of them. Every Saturday morning, my papu, my grandfather, would bring donuts from Howard's. I'd eat at least six of them. That was an absolute. During duck season, we were in Elaine, Arkansas, only on the weekends. And Coke was Coke, not pop. It was Coke. But why do some use pop to refer to Coke and others just say Coke? In a lot of ways, if not in most ways, it's regional. The buddy who, the only buddy I knew who would refer to Coke as pop was from Iowa. And that's what he heard growing up, and therefore, that's why he referred to Coke as pop. I knew what he was saying, though, right? And when someone says pop, you know what they're saying. They're saying Coke. Although using a different term, that's what he was doing. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happening here in 1 John, where the apostle is speaking of the message that he and the other apostles were commissioned to convey to those who did not have the direct experience of Christ that the twelve did they heard something from Jesus, and John now passes it along as a central assertion of, of his epistle. And looking quickly back at verse 1 of 1 John chapter 1, we see what? That that which was from the beginning, the apostles have heard, they have seen with their eyes, they have looked upon, and the verse tells us that their, their hands have handled. And in our text this evening, beginning in verse 5, of chapter 1, what I aim for you all to see is that the very foundation of John's epistle here is the conviction from what they have heard and what they have seen and what they have even felt that through these shared firsthand experiences there is a light, as one commentator says, peculiar to God the Father, though shared with Christ the Son, which those who know God recognize. And those who do not know God he says, well, the opposite end of that, they will not recognize, much less honor this intimate father-son connection, but will define one apart from the other. Remember, this is the very issue being debated by the church to which John is writing to. And in a lot of ways, going back to the Coke and Pop, it's as if they were saying, we always knew it as Coke. And now they're teaching us that we need to call it Pop. This is entirely different from what we've always known it to be. And they're left confused. And in, in this passage, we're given a fundamental answer to a bevy of questions asked by Christians during time of confusion, during time of tumult, during time of unrest, of crisis, of anguish. Questions like, what does God want of me? What is God asking of me? How do I follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? How can I faithfully serve him? And, and many other questions. But to address this issue, John uses the image of walking in the light as a way to lay out or present the, the necessary expectations to those whose desires are to do just that, to walk in the light. And to help those of you who might be jumping ahead and thinking, okay, well, what if we do all these things? What if we meet the expectations? Are we actually doing what God wants? Is there any actual checklist being marked off? Are we then 
Having done these things, are we walking in the light? And what you'll hopefully see tonight and over the coming weeks and months as we dive further into our study of 1 John is that these expectations ultimately, expectations for every Christian are tied together by one's understanding of God's character and specifically of God's activity in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in order to understand why Christians are called to walk in the light, we have to first determine who the light is. And this is where we will pick up our study this evening as John begins with an assertion in verse 5 about God using a simple statement. And that statement being that God is light. And if he is light, everything not only depends upon this statement, but it also flows from it. So before we dive in, let's pause and ask for the Lord to help us and for the Spirit's blessing on the preaching of the word. Oh God, we pray now for the help of the Holy Spirit. We want to know you better, Lord. We want to hear your truth. We want to walk in the light. We are hungry and we are thirsty, Lord, for righteousness. Keep your promise and fill us, Father, and do it now through this portion of your holy word. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 5. Again, I hope your Bible's open. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, why would John feel the need to define God as light? Light being phos in Greek, defined as to shine or make manifest, manifest being to, to make clear or obvious to the mind, clear or obvious to the mind or to the eye. But in what sense is God light? Doug O'Donnell notes light enables vision. It produces growth. Light reveals beauty. It, explodes, it exposes blemish. It guides travelers, and light also, he says, it warms the earth. Here, John is also appealing to Old Testament imagery, where when referencing God, we see this illustrated in several ways. First, looking to the book of Exodus, light attends as well as characterizes God's self-manifestation. Here, God reveals himself to Moses and the burning bush, and to Israel is a cloud of fire to do what? To illuminate the way for his people. And in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, we're drawn a picture by the psalmist of God clothed in garments of light. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as a garment. These garments being an appropriate symbol for the one who is holy, the one who is pure, and the one who is righteous. Another illustration, as God has revealed himself through spoken and written word, he gives light. You all are well familiar with this word as we even said it this evening providentially. I didn't plan that. After the reading of scripture, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This word offers both guidance and direction morally for living in accordance to the will of God. And why does it do that? Because just as light is what we as human beings use when it's dark and need to know where we're going, so does God show the way in which human beings are to walk. God reveals himself. Psalm 36, verse 9, the psalmist writes, In your light we see. In your light we see. And lastly, God's salvation is symbolized through light. The psalmist knows this quite well as 
we see him celebrating in Psalm 27, verse 1, saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And again in Psalm 18, verse 28, For you, my light, you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten, the psalmist concludes, my darkness. The Lord will enlighten my darkness. These points all together demonstrating that his light shows the way in darkness. Similarly, we are able to know God and the path in which we are to walk, this path being one that leads to God, by virtue of his revelation. To have knowledge of God and to walk in the way that God requires, says one commentator, it constitutes salvation. Also in this verse, we see a Christological connection as, as parallel language is repeated in the New Testament. By and for, that's right, Jesus. In John 8, verse 12, we find Jesus sitting in the temple and teaching those who came to him there. And he says, I, this is Jesus, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Later in John, having already claimed, as we just read, that, that Jesus, he says, he's the light of the world. He follows that up. In verse 46 of chapter 12, by saying, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide, should not dwell in darkness. Again, I hope your Bible's open. Flip a couple books back. We're going to look at Luke 2, beginning in verse 25. Luke 2, beginning in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles is how Simeon is describing Jesus' mission. Further, in that well-known passage in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, the apostle speaks of the resurrected and exalted Lord as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He says, dwelling in inapproachable light. Arguably, the most well-known passage concerning Jesus and light was his transfiguration when his Matthew 17 verse 2 tells us that his face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes, we're told, were white as the light. Altogether, the words and work of Jesus were pointing as testimonies to the God, who John tells us here in verse 5, is the light. After all, it is Jesus who has given the apostles this precise message, 
And here again, we're, we're told to, to declare. Jesus gave them this message to declare. And its importance should not be understated. As another commentator concludes, it certainly is an excellent summary of the divine nature, the starting point of the gospel, he says, and the antidote for the community John addresses that is beset by darkness of a doctrinal, of an ethical, as well as relational nature. So what is clear is that Jesus' light on the Father, it centers on the Father's character. Namely what? That God is light. And this breaks down in two ways. Okay, firstly, God is perfectly pure morally. That means he's without evil and only goodness. Secondly, God is perfectly pure intellectually. He's without error and holy and only and all true. And it's this reality that caused M.M. Thompson to state, lest there be any misunderstanding, lest there be any misunderstanding, John emphatically restates the point, in him is no darkness at all. God is pure light. He says God is not deluded or mixed in any way with evil or hatred or untruth or ignorance or hostility. God is light is not a theoretical assertion about the nature of God but a statement that drives us to the heart of what God is like. He says, this is who God is. God is pure light. And for John, this statement rings with implications for you, implications for the Christian life. So how then, if if you agree with that statement that God is light, how then does this help answer the question asked earlier this evening, what then does God want of me? Or even further, what is walking in the light? How do we walk in the light? How do I walk in the light? And John will continue to answer that question for you. And he does so pretty plainly here in absolute terms. He says lightness and darkness are incompatible in the Christian as they are, as the creature, as they are in the creator. They're incompatible in God. So in his first three epistles, John uses terms like righteousness and truth and love, and eternal life, and hope, and purity, and confidence. And he does this to describe the sphere of God's light, and as such, the one in which God's children, the children of light, are to walk in. Look at these next two verses. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John uses walk here as a synonym for living, as the Greek translates to live or to follow. So to walk in in the light is another way of saying that for the Christian, life is to be lived within the sphere of God's light. Carl's not here this evening, so I've got a C.S. Lewis quote. And he put it this way. We believe that the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, not because we can clearly see the sun. He says, in fact, we cannot. We can't see the sun. But because we can see everything else. Because we can see everything else. Point being, while we cannot see the light clearly, by and in the light... We see everything else. 
through the light we're able to discern and through the light we're able to follow the way of righteousness and truth that is salvation as well as life. So what's the flip side then? The antithesis to light and the antithesis to goodness. Well, John tells us throughout this book, he says it's falsehood, it's hatred, it's unrighteousness, it's fear, it's lust. The opposite sphere to light is described here as darkness. And later in chapters 2 and 3, one who, who walks in the darkness, who we could say dwells in the darkness, he compares the darkness to the world. He would say, you're worldly, you're living in the world if you're not living in the light. So this sphere fundamentally consists of all that God is not, and therefore it goes against the light that God is. Darkness and light share nothing in common, nor is there any overlap, and God has no fellowship with darkness. Why? We've said it, it feels like a million times tonight, because God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. He is wholly righteous. And as such, the children of God are to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Thompson again emphasizes that to walk in the light means to shape one's whole being. To shape one's whole being, all of one's actions, one's decisions and thoughts and beliefs by the standard of God who is light. Even as a circle gives shape to empty space, it does not mean to be perfect as God is perfect. Rather, to walk in the light means to live continually guided and committed to the God who is light. What God wants of us is that we shape our lives not by an external norm or some arbitrary standard, but in conformity with the very character and heart of God. And if if you hear this, And your thought initially is, well, what's the point to live that way? Then the way that God wants, if that's what I'm hearing, if this is how we are to live, how can we, what's the point if I can't ever and will never be like God? Well, I would caution you by saying not so fast, because while we are told to walk in the light, we are, we're told to walk in the light, we're never told to be the light. And in the concluding verses, John is going to walk you through how not to understand the assertion that God is light so that you may rightly understand what it means to live in the light. Beginning in verse 6 again, if we say that we have no fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's the first thing? you notice in these, these five verses. Four of the five begin with the conditional clause, if, with verse seven coming immediately after the but. But not only that, they are ordered negative to positive. For instance, negatively in verse six, if we say, if we say what? If we lie and do not practice the truth, 
Whereas positively, it follows that up in verse 7, if we walk, God does what? He cleanses us from all sin. And this order continues through verse 10. Verses 6, 8, and 10 are claims that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, views as, as false deductions to draw from the belief that God is light. And while verses 7, 9, and verse 1 of chapter 2, we see John advances theological counterclaims to these false statements. If, 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 right? But it's more like if, then. So let's roll up our sleeves and dive into these five verses, starting in verse 6, where we see the apostle expounding that a person claiming closeness with God can also at the same time walk in the world's darkness. And he's saying, by doing this, you've, you've broken fellowship with God. Or even possibly, you've never had it in the first place. If you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Promise and the character Talkative comes to mind, well, then great minds think alike. Because John Bunyan writes of Talkative, he talketh of prayer, he talketh of repentance, he talketh of faith and of the new birth. But Bunyan says he knows but only to, to talk of them. Religion, Bunyan goes on, hath no place in Talkative's heart. There's no religion in his heart. All hath lieth, he concludes, in his tongue. It's all untrue. He talks a big game. And here the apostle teaches us that you cannot claim to have fellowship with God. You cannot claim to have fellowship with God and still continue to walk in darkness. They are incompatible. You cannot do it. Notice darkness in verse 6 is not a synonym for indwelling sin. Rather, darkness is the opposing force by which the positive in verse 7, light. Light here is to live by the truth. That it says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's as if John is saying, yes, those in the light do indeed sin. They do. But, but they also recognize the need to be cleansed from their sin. Unlike those who choose to walk in the darkness and deny in doing so their need of cleansing. Why? Because unlike those who walk in darkness, when you walk in God's light, that light does what? It reveals to you who you are. Which is what? A sinner. It reveals that you are a sinner. And as a result, the light shows your path forward, and that's to be washed or cleansed by and in the blood of Jesus. And this is good news for those who struggle with God's grace in light of previous sin, in light of acts that you, you think somehow discount you from fellowship with God. John, again, it's like he's saying, you know that sin that you think is too heinous, that sin you think is too vile, that sin you think was too selfish. Yeah, that, that sin, that act or acts, it's covered. And not just that one, they're all covered. Every single sin that stains you and makes you too defiled to commune with the holy God has been cleansed by Christ's propitiation. He says it's true. His atoning sacrifice has shed blood for your sin has made fellowship with God possible. And not only that, but the Savior's blood, it, it preserves your, your fellowship with other believers and it preserves your fellowship with your Father in heaven. And this is good news. Now look what John says in verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here John moves from his first claim to his second, which is saying we have no sin, and if if that is your claim, then what? He says you deceive yourselves, and the truth is not in you. Prompting one commentator to conclude those who deny original sin deny the very noses on their faces. Those who deny original sin deny the very noses on their faces. Parents know this all too well, don't you? What naturally comes to our younger ones? We don't have to teach them. Or why do we have to teach them what not to do so early in life? It's natural, isn't it? Come to our house. But it's not just my kids. It's not just your kids, is it? Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, what's Jesus doing? Our sinless Savior is saying that even those fathers who lovingly and rightly dote on their children are not free from the fallenness of human condition. Mark 7 Verses 21 through 22, Jesus provides even more context to the sinfulness of man's heart. Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness. He goes on, deceit, lawlessness, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and he ends with foolishness. So what's the solution? Well, part of that solution that, God, or that John gives to the denial of sin is the, the confession of sin. And that's why it's our practice here at Woodruff Road, either in the morning or the, the evening service, to corporately confess our sin during worship. We did that just a few moments ago. Look at how many instances Scripture provides for us to confess our sin. We see it publicly in Luke 18, privately in Psalm 32, individually in Ezra, corporately in Nehemiah, Scripture also shows the confession of personal sin, the sin of others, confession of one's sin to others and to those offended, and always littered through Scripture to God. And again, as we've done here this evening, the biblical pattern of confession follows the assurance of pardon because confession brings about God's mercy. And we're told here in verse 9, It brings about God's mercy because he is faithful. God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not just some, but all unrighteousness. And again, this is God's character. This is who he is. God is always faithful and God is always just. And on the basis of Christ's blood, God forgives and he cleanses. John continues along beginning in in verse 10. And going into chapter 2, again dealing with the claim to be without sin. He's saying this is a problem, and we're going to tackle it head on. Look with me again. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also, he concludes, for the whole world. It's one thing knowingly to tell an untruth or a lie, writes R.E. Brown, but he says it's worse to deceive oneself to the point where there is no truth at all. 
it's still worse to make God a liar. And what John is saying here is, friends, the outright denial of sin, it does just that. It makes God a liar because it wholeheartedly, it altogether rejects God's provision for sin, which is, is what? The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because remember, what is John doing here? What's the purpose of the why? Why is he writing this letter? He's writing the letter to exhort, to urge and encourage his readers so that they will not sin. He's urging them to avoid it. Here's the pathway too. While acknowledging that all people sin, that all do sin, and that God has established a means of dealing with their sin. And that's what he's telling us here. Although we are unrighteous, we have an advocate, we have an intercessor. The Greek for advocate being parakletos, which is where we see the term paraclete borrowed from. And while Dan earlier said this, the B team was leading today with us both breaking out Greek and using the same word shows real synergy when, when Scotty and Carl aren't here. But it's neat and it's providential and I'm thankful for it that we get to use and, and see and dig into this word a little bit more because it's, it's fascinating. A, a paraclete is exclusive to the New Testament. It's exclusive to John. It's an advocate, one who would represent a friend in court who would then intercede on his behalf with the judge. And here John is telling us that that intercessor is righteous. The paraclete is, is righteous. And on your behalf, he's the one dealing with or interceding with the judge who also is righteous. For who? The unrighteous sinner. And Jesus is advocating on our behalf, not to an indifferent father, not to an indifferent judge, but rather is the one with the most intimate of relationships with and access to the Father. He is, it tells us, with the Father. Verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us Jesus is with the Father. This is Trinitarian, the Trinitarian relationship with the Godhead. The second person, God the Son, is aware that what he asks will be granted to him. And yet, how is this intercession made possible? We see it only by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. There's no intercession without first propitiation. There's not intercession without first propitiation. And the, the imagery here is, is grand, is it not? From the courtroom to the temple. From Christ being the believer's advocate to Christ being the atoning sacrifice itself for those same sins, for that same sinner, for those same people. He is the lamb who was slaughtered on the altar at the temple. This is who Christ is. So how do we apply this text this evening? It was John the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle John who said, The Lamb takes away the sins of the whole world. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John says the Lamb takes away the sins of the whole world. And I want to make it very clear that by using this phrase, the whole world, did not mean John had embraced universalism, nor was he advocating that upon Christ's death everyone would be saved on the basis of Jesus' death, nor had John embraced antinomianism. Right? Because we'll see as we continue our study that John 
that as did John the Baptist in Matthew 3, warn of the trees that bear bad fruit, so does the Apostle John caution about the dangers of presumption. This is not a free-for-all so that you can live as you want while claiming the name of Christ and subsequently enter in through that narrow great gate all the while producing bad fruit. That's not how this works. Rather, the death of Christ, which John the Baptist is saying, is sufficient to deal with every Christian sin. Every Christian sin. And the good news is that those here this evening whose life bears the bad fruit, and you fooled yourself into thinking it be good, the good news is that you can turn from your sin, as the cross is great enough to cover your sin and its benefits can be enjoyed by all who embrace the saving work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, First John is the antithesis of the sonship movement in the late 90s, is it not? With sayings like, God hates sin but loves the sinner. Or that's just the way God made me. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. While the apostle would clearly recognize the element of truth and slogans such as those, his writing, it clearly commends that you do not see your denial of the flesh or your denial of lust nor your denial of pride as a game where you've, you've somehow recorded the do's and you've checked off the don'ts. Further, overcoming the devil and overcoming the world does not mean that you've avoided a compromising situation or you've avoided a particular temptation. You've avoided R-rated movies or The Chosen or tobacco or alcohol. Brushing these off and chalking them up to grace would be the pitfall John is writing to warn you of here, and that would be the opposite of walking in the light. The Spirit brings you face to face with your own guilt and your own failure, and if you're not walking in the light, then God's Spirit is not dealing with you at all. Are you actively asking God, Lord, show me myself, reveal to me my sin, knowing God by saying no, by actively mortifying your sin is hard work. And not only that, it's intentional, and it's time-consuming, and you have to be proactive but it's work, nonetheless, that, that God's word calls you to. And this is how you walk in the light. And as we, we saw this evening, it's work that is grounded in the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. Therefore, friends, it's worth doing. This is what he wants of you. So get going by the power of the Spirit and walk in the light. For the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, bless your word. Father, use it in our hearts and use it in our lives. Change us by it. Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to bring our sin to light so that we may repent of it and walk in the light. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray.